Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church, located in Grove City, Pennsylvania. As we approach the end of the 2017 fiscal year, we encourage you, if you've been helped by these sermons, to make a donation to Grace by visiting our website, graceanglicanonline.com, and clicking on the Donate tab. Thank you for your help. And now we turn our attention to the far more important subject of the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. For me, one of the most tragic elements of life is that we do not always get to finish what we start. There's much that's left undone. Life is punctuated by unfinished business all the time. I was reminded of it uh, this week as I was considering the arts and how many masterpieces have gone unfinished because of untimely death. You think of Mozart's Requiem, unfinished, and you think of Gilbert's portrait of George Washington, which remains unfinished. You think of Charles Dickens' uh, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, unfinished. But it's not only the arts and high culture, it's just experience. We all know what this is like in our day-to-day Existence. We know lots of people whose marriages are unfinished because of the horrors of divorce. Many people have a desire to have children, and that desire has yet to be satisfied. For some people, their life is cut short unexpectedly and tragically. I think tonight about my friend in Texas who was celebrating her three-year anniversary with her husband, or would have been, but he just died, and she was eight months pregnant when he passed away. And uh, I, I remember in the novel Hannibal by Thomas Harris that there was a very poignant scene where Hannibal Lecter drops a, a teacup on the ground just to watch it shatter, which is a reminder to him and subsequently to the reader that life falls apart and that the trajectory of life is always toward a disillusionment, deconstruction, and uh, dust. And so uh, this is the uh, experience in which we uh, so frequently participate, the unfinished business of life. And the, the question for our consideration tonight is, will unfinished business ever be finished? Is there a sense in which there might be a resolution to the pains and strains of our own experience? And Jesus would have said yes. Jesus did say yes. Uh, Now, that doesn't come out of nowhere. Uh, Jesus was born within a religion that had, uh, at its core, an undimmed optimism, particularly the strain of Judaism in which Jesus was nurtured, which was apocalyptic Judaism. Jesus was, the Germans would have called him an apocalypter. Isn't Isn't that nice? A great word. It means somebody that is moved and influenced deeply by the thought that history slouches toward resolution, that history slouches toward rather than away from the light. And uh, Jesus was deeply informed by the prophets, of course, the great prophets of Judaism. And this was always their idea that no matter how bad things got, there was a light that was undimmed. And that light was coming toward us, even if we weren't walking towards it. 
and this uh, light would eventually prevail. And so Isaiah is praying that God would speed up the process that you would rend the heavens and come down. And John the Baptist, Jesus' own blood relative, uh, taught as people were coming to him in the wilderness that the, the acts of God, the acts of God, the justice of God was right against the root of the rotten tree and was about to cut the thing down just a hair's breadth away from justice. That's where the world was. And this is the nurturing atmosphere in which Jesus of Nazareth was raised. And so he's an apocalyptic prophet as the Son of God, an apocalyptor. I want to speak tonight about the gospel lesson, but it's so rich that I can't possibly speak about all of it. So I'm just going to focus on verses 33 through 36, in which Jesus, speaking apocalyptically, addresses two themes— Absence and anticipation. Absence and anticipation. We'll begin with absence in verse 33. This is what he says. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Now, Matthew 13 is part of a very lengthy discourse called the Olivet Discourse. It is named after the Mount of Olives where this teaching is taking place. The Mount of Olives is the horticultural district of Jerusalem. But it's not just the horticultural district of Jerusalem. It's a hill that was littered with two contrasting elements. It was littered with trees and tombstones. So you had fig trees, trees and olive trees, but you also intermingled with those trees had tombs. In fact, at least currently, there's some speculation, but it's between 100,000 and 300,000 people are buried in the Mount of Olives. And that's why in the time of Christ, they believed that the Mount of Olives would be the place in which the resurrection would begin. Start right there. And so Jesus is in this place in which you have life and death all around you. And he believes that it's a, an appropriate time, given the disciples' great interest in the beauty of the temple. They're very interested in the architecture. They're like tourists. And so they're looking touristy at the temple. And Jesus is saying, well, since we're here, let me tell you about the future of that building. And while I'm at it, the future of the world. And so the the discourse that's found in Mark chapter 13 ranges uh, from 70 AD and the destruction of the temple to the future that we're still looking forward to. Uh, it's this vast swath of time. And, uh, and in the midst of it, Jesus is having what I regard as a very abnormal conversation with his followers. Abnormal because he's talking about the coming of the Son of Man or the appearing of the Son of Man. Why that's weird? The Son of Man is sitting right there in the garden talking to them. That's very strange. But he's talking about some sort of future event in which he's going to gather up the troops from the four corners of the earth. And so we understand from this sermonette given in a tomb and garden that Jesus understands his mission to have two chapters, the messianic manual 
has two sections that are quite distinct from one another. And Jesus is in the first chapter, but he knows there is a second chapter to come. And between those two chapters, those two acts of the play, there is an extended intermission. Now, this was a unique insight that only Jesus had. Nobody, nobody in the first century understood the Messiah's career to look that way. But he talks about it time and time again, particularly as he's marching toward his own demise. His parables get darker. Maybe you've noticed that as you walk through the Gospels. But in Mark chapter 13, he talks about this absence between his first coming and his second coming. And he he expresses it in story form, almost like a parable in verse 34. It is like a man who goes on a journey, and when he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Notice what is guaranteed here by Jesus, that he's going to be absent, and he's going to put people in charge for a season, and he most certainly will return, and you will not know the time of that return. This is repeated time and time again in, Mark, in Matthew 25. Uh, Jesus s- s- tells the disciples the, the parable of the talents. You remember that one? where it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. And then later, that master returns to do a little follow-up with those who were to invest his property. And then also in Matthew 25, you have the wise and foolish virgins who were going to attend a wedding, but they, the, the bridegroom was delayed, took a long time to arrive, And then, surprise, he showed up, and half of them had oil for their lamps, and half of them didn't. So Jesus is trying to tell his disciples, there is going to be a time, and it's very imminent, in which I'm going to be taken away from you. I will return, but that return will occur at a time and place that you do not not and cannot predict. Again, this differs significantly with the apocalyptic expectations of the first century. Most people... If you were to you know, ask Isaiah, certainly if you were to sit down John the Baptist and ask, what do you think about the Messiah and his arrival? It would be cataclysmic, universally affecting cataclysm. The Messiah shows up and enacts justice, and he, and he is like the Messiah is God's Clint Eastwood, sent into the world to like deal with the thugs, to deal with the brutes, to deal with the, um, the people that are that are polluting and harming his world, to deal with the people that are violent, to deal with those who steal your, you know, your retirement. He's going to deal with them once and for all. And yet Jesus doesn't seem to have the same vision. John the Baptist says the, the axe is at the root of the tree. And then he acknowledges Jesus as the Savior, right? You remember that? Jesus walks up to him in the baptismal water of the Jordan, and and John says, Behold the Lamb of God. Well, then John gets arrested, and he's wasting away in a dank prison cell, and he starts to have a lot of doubts. Because if the Messiah is here, then why is a prophet of God wasting away in a prison? It doesn't make any sense to him, because the axe is supposed to be at the root of the tree, and the axe doesn't seem to be cutting anything down. Instead, Jesus seems to have taken that axe and buried it somewhere. And he sends these disciples to Jesus, and he gives Jesus a message, a question. 
Are you really the one? Or should we wait for somebody else? Because it doesn't seem like you're acting very messianically. My question is, why the absence? Why does Jesus go away? Why doesn't he pull a Clint Eastwood? Why doesn't he deal with the problem squarely and immediately and end this madness? Aren't you tired of it too? But scripture gives us part of the reasoning. Do you know that? In, in 2 Peter 3, like generations later, and this is what it says in 2 Peter 3, scoffers will say to you, where is the promise of his coming? All things continue as they were, just like it was from the beginning of creation. Everything's just the same day after day. But then Peter answers them. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, Peter is saying the reason for the delay, the reason for the absence, is so you'll have the gift of time. Time to be reconciled to your maker. This is why we call it a redemptive delay or a redemptive absence. In the first chapter of the Messianic manual, Jesus lives, dies, rises again, and sends the Holy Spirit in order to inaugurate what could be called the age of grace, not the age of justice. Uh, and thank God for the age of grace. Thank God that John the Baptist was premature in his desire for justice. Um, because if God is Clint Eastwood, we're doomed. Because nobody, you know, nobody lives in that village, because Clint Eastwood shoots everybody. Because, oh Lord, if you counted what has gone amiss, who could stand? And so instead, God says, I'm going to hold off on justice. I'm going to create this era of grace in which I call not the righteous, but sinners. And I call lots of sinners to return to me. And I'm going to make a way. And the way is through the cross. And so God creates this age of grace, and he gives us the gift of time. The issue with it is that if you give people, sinners that is, time to hear the gospel, to interact with it, to process it, to receive it into their hearts, and then to be morphed slowly over time by it, you, by necessity, allow sin to live concurrently with redemption. In fact, Jesus described it this way. The kingdom of God is like wheat and tares that grow up side by side together and are not sorted out until the end. So love and hate grow in the same field. That's the only way you have a real age of grace. God allows people time to be reconciled to himself. And the age of grace is why we're here tonight. This is all a gift. And of course, this means by necessity that justice will be delayed. Justice is delayed. It is not currently uh, present in all of its radicality and needful restorative qualities. So in other words, redemption is real and people will still sell you bad cars that they know are bad. And people will still pollute. And people will steal from you. And people will lie about you and spread rumors about you that are not true. And people will, uh, will cheat the elderly. And people will sexually assault women. But both are existing concurrently in this absence. But he also talks about anticipation. This is verse 34. He commands the doorkeeper to 
stay awake. Therefore, verse 35, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now, there are elements in Jesus' words here of uncertainty and certainty. The uncertainty relates to the time. Jesus is telling them, you will not know the day or hour. Jesus is also telling them earlier, I don't know the day or the hour. Uh, what happens in the incarnation is that Jesus leaves behind immediate access to some of his divine prerogatives, like omniscience. And so Jesus really doesn't know any more than you do. Jesus is just as ignorant as we are about that particular aspect of his return. Or he's not ignorant is that he is certain, utterly certain, that there will be a second chapter in this manual. There will be a second act of this play. The intermission will not carry on forevermore, but will have a dramatic and somewhat unexpected conclusion. The journeyman will return. And his exhortation to us that is thrice repeated is to stay awake. Stay awake. Now, what does that mean? It means, and we know this because of the passage itself, to be on guard. He says in verse 33, be on guard, keep awake, using those phrases near synonymously. Uh, it means to be alert. It means to anticipate that the world as we experience it is not going to carry on forever. Uh, but the world wants to make you think that it will carry on this way forever. The world, uh, the world is like the poppy field in The Wizard of Oz. It's pretty. It has a nice odor. It seems like a haven in which you want to take a rest. I mean, you're tired, after all. You work hard. I work hard. My relatives say I work just one hour a week. It's not, it's not true, by the way. Um, but I'm tired. Aren't you tired? I want to just rest in the poppy field. I want to lay down. What we don't realize, though, is that the world system that, co that coaxes us to sleep is poisoning our lungs. Like, so Dorothy falls asleep so that her quest will end, right? And that's the world. It's the poppy field of Oz. And it's trying to lure you in. And it's, it's whispering in your ear, where is the promise of his coming? All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. The Fed was around yesterday. It's around today. It'll be around tomorrow. Um, your plumbing will still work tomorrow. The mail will still arrive tomorrow. Everything will remain the same. Safety and security. But we know, don't we, that that isn't exactly uh, true. That no matter how many securities we have in place, that life can, in fact, turn on a dime. All it takes to change your life forever are a few syllables. When somebody sits across from you and says, you have cancer. Your daughter was in an accident. Uh, your son tried to take his life. Your mother has Alzheimer's. I have two weeks to live. That's all it takes. And the universe shifts out of place. And so, this is the situation. Jesus wants us to, he says, stay awake. Stay awake. Don't fall into this malaise in which you uh, fall asleep in the poppy field of the world. Stay awake and live with this expectation, this anticipation that the journeyman's feet shall again meet the ground. 
and walk with you and talk with you and heal the world and finally bring the righteousness and justice of God. Uh, we stay awake and we anticipate this second appearing uh, chiefly by attending to Christ's first appearing, that we prepare to meet God by dealing with God as he made himself known in Jesus Christ uh, in the first century, and that we huddle with our stained clothes near the foot of the cross. And in that place, justice passes us by, because justice has already been met. And so this is the, the call, and this is the gift of time, and this is why we can anticipate. Uh, we get to turn from sin and self-absorption, and we get to wake up. Ephesians 5 puts it this way, and Paul's call to his audience, Awake, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So absence and anticipation. These are two themes that are quite Lenten in their quality. Let me say something about each. Absence, our nations, our cultural moments, and our lives, they are all unfinished business Christ has yet to renew all things. Uh, and whatever labor we do in the vineyard of the Lord, we will not complete the task ourselves. This, of course, forbids all sorts of false uh, utopian thoughts that human beings have to reconstruct the kingdom of God on earth. It's called the kingdom of God for a reason. And he is the one who created it and will culminate that kingdom. Uh, and until he does that, until he finally brings the resolution that is promised by the prophets and by Christ, we will live with an inner ache. We will ache for what is not yet here, what does not feel real. We will join with Isaiah and shout at the heavens and say, why don't you rip the heavens apart and come down? We need your help now, not tomorrow, right now. By the way, the scripture in the prophets and also the Psalms uh, give us language to, in that way, prayerfully assault the heavens. It is not disrespectful to God, or he wouldn't have put it in the canon as a model for our prayers. And so we live with this ache, but we also live in Christ's absence with an ache that anticipates fulfillment that amidst this intoxicating odor of the poppy field, we can be expectant with our eyes fixed on the eastern sky. We can be children of hope. Uh, I want to read you a story that I uh, just discovered that Justin Taylor wrote up on the Gospel Coalition page. and He uh, recently covered this true story regarding the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Some of you know his work. And the lyrics that he wrote in what has become a song entitled, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. So in 1861, uh, when Henry's eldest son just celebrated his 16th birthday, Henry's wife tragically died after her dress caught on fire and she burned almost to death. She died uh, two days later after the fire. And Henry, who tried to put out the flames, was himself burned terribly and his face was deformed from then on and he was in such pain and unable to get out of bed that he missed his own wife's funeral. And he was nearly institutionalized on several occasions throughout his life because of his intense grief. Well, when Henry's son Charlie was 18 years old, 
himself a grieving soul. He, unbeknownst to his family, ran away from home, boarded a train bound for Washington, D.C., traveled over 400 miles, and joined President Lincoln's Union Army to fight in the Civil War. He was actually looking forward to fighting in the Battle of Gettysburg, but he fell ill with typhoid fever and was sent home. And he missed that battle, but eventually rejoined his unit. While dining at home on December 1st, 1863, Henry Longfellow received a telegram that his son had been severely wounded in battle. He was shot through the left shoulder with the bullet grazing his spine and exiting through the right shoulder blade. It had almost paralyzed him. So on Christmas Day, 1863, Henry Longfellow, then a 57-year-old father of six children, whose eldest had been nearly paralyzed by a country at war with itself, uh, wrote a poem about the dissonance that he experienced in his own heart and in the world around him. And he was inspired by the church bells that he heard the church bells that were ringing as soldiers were walking home, muddied, bloodied. And he observed this world of injustice and violence and believed that it was mocking the truthfulness of the gospel's optimism. And the poem settles in its conclusion with a confident hope. I'll read it to you. "'Twas as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead. He doth not sleep. The wrong shall fail the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. How does he know that? Is this just wish fulfillment? Mythic thinking? How does he know? How do I know? This is what I can say about Christ. He did it once. He did it once. He slaughtered death once. We have more than just his words in a garden. We have his blood. And we have a tomb without an occupant. And if he can do it once, I think he can do it again. And if he can make you born again, maybe he can do the same for the whole world. Shattered teacups can, in fact, be mended. Then peel the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead. He doth not sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Happy Advent. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.